John 7, 40 through 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we just come this morning, Lord, just praising your name, giving you the glory. So, Father, we thank you for your sacrifices that you made with your son Jesus on our behalf to those who would just believe. Lift up the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. Thank you for this church. We ask you bless and continue to be on this church, Lord, and leadership and congregation, Lord, and those that are out there, uh, Lord, that make up this church. We ask you blessings be with them. Lift up our nation. Ask you lead our nation, Lord, with the leadership and the people that will follow your ways, Lord, and, and do your will. Lord, lift up the nation of Israel. Ask that you be with that country and your leadership in this time, Lord. Thank you for all the things you've done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ernie Tammy, for reading and praying for us this morning. I ask you to keep your Bibles open to John chapter 7. We're going to allow our kids to be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. If you are Children's Church age kiddos, you all are welcome to go to Children's Church. Um, yeah, you can go. Y'all are matching dresses and everything. That's great. Well, I had a friend from Arizona that messaged this morning, kind of making fun of us for uh, turning back our clocks. Uh, They don't do that sort of thing in Arizona. I can tell you I was grateful for that extra hour last night as we made our way back from Starkville. We were some of the few people who left Starkville happy last night. Um, I won't get into that. I can, but I, I won't get into that. Uh, but it was a, I, somehow the, the road got twice as long coming back as it was going going there. Uh, so uh, we got back late, but uh, boy, it's been a powerful time together as a church already this morning as we have worshiped God through song. What a blessing to sing what we but we got to sing this morning about our great God. What a, what a joy to do that corporately. And now we come, I'm just, folks, are you just amazed that Jesus saved you? If you're a believer in this room, are, are you just amazed at who he is and what he's done in your life? We should be. I, I'm so excited as we come into this text um, and, and look at all of this debate going on about Jesus. And, and no one ever spoke like this man because... No one is like this man. He is unique. 
have you ever missed something that was just right in front of you? Like there, something took place or you, you, you met somebody and just completely missed it? Some of you might know the name Tony Hawk. He's probably the most famous skateboarder ever. He's well known to many, um, but uh, like many of us, he's a little bit older now. And people might recognize him as a famous figure, but not be able to compute in their minds who he is in the moment. And he'll, he'll tweet sometimes about those run-ins. He described one of them. One was an interaction with a, a TSA agent who had his ID and was checking it. And, and she said, Hawk, like that skateboarder Tony Hawk. To which he said, exactly. And she said, cool, I wonder what he's up to these days. And he said, this. I, so <laughs> she knew the name Tony Hawk, knew he was famous, had his ID in hand. He is right in front of her, and she missed that he was actually Tony Hawk. Now, it is no big deal to fail to recognize a celebrity. But the stakes are much higher when it comes to the one Savior of mankind. Jesus' teaching and miracles don't show up in the text that Miss Tammy read for us today. But what he's been doing in, in John chapter 7 uh, has, has brought about division among the people. And they're now debating who he is. And most people seem to miss him now remember where we are jesus has come he's taught at the feast of booths uh this is a big festival on the big three in jerusalem where people had to come uh, especially jewish males had to come into jerusalem for it and jesus has taught very publicly in the temple and he is just as we looked at last week he has made a monumental claim if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink now the crowd understands he is not talking about physical water. He's not meaning H2O. He is claiming to be the one who is able to give salvation to mankind. And that stirred up controversy in first century Jerusalem. And when the gospel is preached today, it still stirs up controversy. There will be some, and I hope everybody in this room will surrender to him as Lord of their lives rightly recognizing who he is at the same time we recognize others will reject him and want nothing to do with him so in our text today we see great division all over the place there are different responses to him some say he's the prophet some say he's the Christ now, from our perspective on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we understand Jesus fulfills both of those roles. He is both prophet and Christ. But many in Jesus' day really expected two different people to fulfill those roles. One would be prophet, one would be Christ. Well, where do we get this the prophet idea? There were lots of prophets in the Old Testament. But Moses himself spoke about a prophet, not about just a prophet, but the prophet who was to come in Deuteronomy 18.15. 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now just remember where we are in John's gospel. Jesus has just claimed the ability to bring water, to give water, the water of salvation, which links us back to Moses and the people of Israel in the wilderness where God, through Moses, striking a rock, brought forth water from the rock for the people. So there is a faction here in John 7, after the Feast of of Booths, who would look and say, Jesus is the prophet. Moses gave water in the wilderness. Jesus gives water to us in terms of salvation. So they have that in mind. Others rightly see that Jesus is the Christ. We see that in verse 41. And then there's another group that just basically rejects him as a fraud from Galilee. The religious elite here, they think he's a phony and he should be arrested. And there there are some who are wrestling with this authority that they see in Jesus and that they've never really observed in anybody else. So in John chapter 7, we've been asking the question, who is Jesus? You see that question floating around here at the end of John chapter 7. Who is Jesus? That's the question we need to answer and answer rightly. So here here are these folks, these different groups, and, and they're making their own verdicts. But I think it centers around this statement in verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. And the theme of our sermon today is Jesus speaks like no one else spoke because Jesus is like no one else is. Now, I want you to see the objections here. There are some objections stated about Jesus being the Christ, and there are really two of them. The people are saying, but the Messiah will be from the line of David. And then secondly, they're saying, he will come from Bethlehem. I hope you're hearing some irony here. Their trump card is, Jesus can't be the Christ because he has the wrong origin. He's from Galilee, so he's disqualified. John must have a a great sense of humor. I can imagine him smirking as he's writing this down here. Why is that? Because Jesus actually is from the line of David, and Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem. Far from their objections being obstacles to them putting their faith in Jesus, these should be reasons they really do believe Jesus is the Messiah. Now, there are some people who, who wish John had kind of put in an aside here, maybe in parentheses, something like, but Jesus was from the line of David, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Well, there's no need for that. That's like if you tell a joke, and then you have to explain the joke. Folks, if you have to explain the joke, it's not funny, right? John is using irony here. He expects his readers to know what we should know 
from the very first line of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus is from the line of David. And then you don't have to go far. You can go to the next chapter in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 1, to see where Jesus was born. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So I want you to hear behind this, these religious leaders object to Jesus being Messiah because they think he fails to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. We should believe in Jesus because he perfectly fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, it's one thing for them not to look at his birth certificate and see that he really was born in Bethlehem. The bigger origin story that they miss about Jesus is that he is actually from heaven. Now, if you, you're tracking in our text in John chapter 7, earlier some had claimed that they knew where he was from. And Jesus said in verse 28, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. So what he's saying is, Y'all think you know about me. Y'all think you know where I am from, but you really don't. What you're missing is that I actually come from the Father. I have existed eternally. I come from heaven. You can debate all you want about the city I was born in, but you need to know this first and foremost. I come from the Father. In fact, in our next chapter, chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So the first question to get at who is Jesus really is, where is Jesus from? Yes, he's from the line of David. Yes, he is from Bethlehem. Ultimately, he is from heaven. The Father sent him. Well, maybe a second question we should ask. Who is really deceived? So the division over who Jesus is culminates in people wanting to arrest him. Now, we are reminded of God's sovereign purpose and plan in the life of Jesus, and nobody lays a hand on him, and they won't until it is his time. But the Sanhedrin... Earlier in the chapter, specifically verse 32, has already put out an official arrest warrant for Jesus and sent what the ESV calls officers. Now, I want to clear up for us any confusion that we might have about the characters in this story. So you see about religious leaders, likely this is the Sanhedrin. Now, if you don't know that title, that's okay, but the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem consists of the highest religious leadership of Jews. And I also want you to remember, this is Israel. There is no separation between church and state. The law of God is the law of the land. So in Israel, the Sanhedrin has a lot of power. In fact, some would compare them to the Supreme Court in our nation. They're kind of that final level of power. So... 
with that power, remember also though that they're under Roman occupation. There's this umbrella of Rome over them. What they can't do is condemn anyone to death by crucifixion. That power belongs only to Rome. So when we get to the end of John's Gospel, there are soldiers who are in charge of Jesus' crucifixion. Those are Romans. Those are Roman pagans. And they aren't really contemplating whether Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. These are cruel soldiers who will callously gamble for Jesus' clothing as he dies right there before them. And yet, even one of those Roman pagan soldiers will rightly see who Jesus is. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. In fact, not only do we see one, we see those who are with him rightly recognize as Roman centurions that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I say that to bring us back to John chapter 7. We may think that the officers that the Sanhedrin sent out are that same type of Roman soldiers. This is where I want us to make sure we understand. That is not who the Sanhedrin sends out here. The officers are actually Jews who work for the Sanhedrin and are authorized to make an arrest. But listen, they're not just any Jew. These are Levites. So if you'll remember, there are 12 tribes in Israel. And the tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe. So my point in all that is to say these officers know the law. They know the Old Testament. They know the prophecies about Christ. These are not ignorant pagan Romans to the Jewish religion. These are people deeply interested in who the coming Christ is. Which I think makes their testimony even more remarkable. They're sent out to arrest Jesus and they come back empty-handed and they're asked their reason and here's what they say. No one ever spoke like this man. They recognize he's not like anybody else. He's not like any of the other religious pretenders that have originated in Israel, or that have arisen in Israel. And they're so convinced that they're willing to take a stand even if they're going to face discipline for it. I don't think these guys are naive about the backlash they're going to face from the Sanhedrin. I don't think they're going to say, just show up and give their position and, and think, well, the Sanhedrin, they're really open-minded. They're going to understand. They're going to hear us and say, well, you know, maybe we, should, maybe we should think about that. No, they, they know they're in trouble, I'm sure. And maybe they could have come up with an excuse. Under Roman occupation, they could have come back and said, you know, the, the crowd was really stirred up over Jesus, we thought that if we arrested him it might cause a riot, then we're going to be in trouble with Rome, so we just thought um, it would be better for us not to do that. That could have potentially gotten them out of a tight spot with their bosses. But folks, that's not what they do. 
They're sent out on a mission to arrest Jesus. And upon hearing him, seeing him, based on their conscience, they refuse to arrest Jesus. Why? No one ever spoke like this man. Well, what convinced them? Ultimately, what convinced them? Was it the how he taught or the what he taught? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. The how is so different from what they knew. The way rabbis taught in first century Israel was to really bring forward a litany of opinions about a topic or verses in the Old Testament. So what they would do is, if they're talking about a verse, they would say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, then Rabbi so-and-so says this. It would be like me if I was preaching to you, and I, I, have, a, I have a lot of books in my office, I haven't read nearly enough of them, but it would be like me bringing ten commentaries out here and saying, Okay, about verse 42, here's what Douglas Moo says. Here's what D.A. Carson says. Here's what Borchert says. Here's what Hughes says. And, and just going down there. And, and in this, what the people recognize by just quoting a bunch of teachers is there's no real authority in the teaching of these current rabbis. Now, let's also go back to the true prophets of the Old Testament. Okay, true prophets, like, like good prophets, not false prophets, true prophets. They spoke with authority. But hear me, this was a derived authority. In other words, their authority didn't originate from Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Their authority was, thus says the Lord. When we were going through uh, the book of Jeremiah in our Sunday school classes, it stood out to me how over and over, sometimes even just in a single passage we're looking at, it would be so clear to say something like, this is the Lord's declaration. Jeremiah wasn't saying, this is me, this is my agenda. He was saying, this is what the Lord says. So there is authority there. It's just not the prophets, it is the Lord's. All right, Jesus spoke differently. He spoke with a unique authority. When I say unique, unique doesn't have degrees. Unique means one of a kind. Something can't be kind of unique. Something can't be pretty unique. It's either unique or it isn't. And people, when they hear Jesus teach, they're amazed by his authority because it is unique. So in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, and when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see a different authority than the scribes who would just run through a litany of opinions. The last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, in John's gospel, was John chapter 5. And three times in verses 19 through 25, check my math if you want later on, I think it's right. But Jesus will say, truly, truly, I say to you. 
The difference is he wasn't saying, thus says the Lord, as if he had a derived authority. He is saying, in and of himself, sent from the Father, he has an inherent authority. So the how he speaks is different. In fact, here I'm in one of those places in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you. So there's the how. It's a unique authority. And then listen to what he says. This is pushing us into the what of his teaching. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has, had, but has passed from death to life. Folks, only the Son of God could say that. He speaks like no one else spoke because he is like no one else is. He gives eternal life. So the officers, when they come back, and it's a short saying, but no one ever spoke like this man. I just thought this week about what are they hearing? Like the content. What, what are they hearing? And I, I went back and, and kind of skimmed where we've been in John's gospel and some of the things that Jesus has taught. And it, it's so incredibly authoritative, so unique, something only God could say. He told Nicodemus he must be born again. He says that he gives eternal life. That he gives living water. He could tell the woman at the well the details of her life. He could tell an official whose son is dying that his son will live. And only he could back that up. That is bold to say to a man whose kid is dying. But he says it with the authority of one who can heal and who can raise back to life. He declares repeatedly that the Father sent him. He said that the Old Testament bears witness about him. He said that he is the bread of life, fulfilling what we saw in manna in the wilderness. And he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to him and drink. And church, who could say those things? You couldn't say them. I couldn't say them. Only the one who is God in the flesh could say that. So the officers are so right. No one ever spoke like this man. Now, even more literally what they say is no man ever spoke like this man. You say, well, what's, why, why, are you, why are you clarifying that? Why are you saying no man ever spoke like this man? Well, Jesus, or John may again be using some irony here. Maybe he's smiling again because he knows that Jesus is not just a man. Is he fully man? Absolutely. But he also knows that Jesus is fully God in the flesh. 
That's the very first line in John's Gospel. It's such a, a, a bombshell spiritual truth to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the officers are so right. He spoke like no one else spoke because he is like no one else is. So they've just told this to the Pharisees. How do you expect the Pharisees to respond? If, if you weren't reading ahead, maybe if you didn't know some of the character of the Pharisees, you might think, well, these guys have a point. Maybe we should just kind of stop our uh, arrest proceedings and give some thought to what Jesus is teaching. But if you know the Pharisees, you know that's not what they do. Here's what they say. Have you also been deceived? The Pharisees are looking down their noses, saying you guys should know better. To the Levites, to the arresting officers, well, the supposed to be arresting officers who didn't arrest, y'all should have known better. Here's my paraphrase of their argument. This Hatfield paraphrase, it's not in Scripture. Here's what I'm kind of thinking they're doing. None of us incredibly smart, educated, Handsome Pharisees have believed in this guy. Only the losers in the crowd around us have believed. And you guys are deceived. They contrast themselves with the crowd to essentially say, you know, we we might get how he could fool an ignorant crowd, but you guys, y'all have a deeper theological background. You shouldn't be deceived. It would be like a seminary professor today saying to seminary students hey the the average joe on the street might believe in this guy but you all have had systematic theology one get a grip it's a very arrogant statement they make right but again we should see the irony here their accusation is y'all are deceived but who is actually deceived in this text It's those who fail to believe in Jesus. It's really the religious leaders who are the ones who are deceived. And unfortunately, this same thing happens today. Our world thinks that those who trust in Jesus are just so naive, just so foolish. Maybe if you came to Christ as an adult, maybe maybe B.C. in your life, before Christ in your life, you thought, Christians are crazy. I mean, they're they're just strange. How could they believe that there really is such a thing as sin, that a man dying on the cross solves that problem for us, and how could those Christians believe there's just one way to God? But when we are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we recognize Jesus is the truth. There's no deception in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He is truth. And yet there is a deceiver who wants to keep us from seeing that truth. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 
Folks, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 is happening in John 7. Church, it happens in our world today. But the light still overcomes the darkness. And the veil gets pulled back and we see rightly who Jesus is. And when we put our trust in Him, we who are cursed have the curse lifted. You say, where do you get that type of language, Pastor? Well, our third question we're asking who is really accursed? The opinion of the Pharisees about the crowd, it's not just kind of low, folks. I mean, it's about the worst opinion you could have of somebody. In verse 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now look, that's not just some generic insult they're bringing out. And likely in the background of their minds is Deuteronomy and the curses that are stated. And we can see something like Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. So we want to take that accursed language and glory in the gospel. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to bear the curse. Jesus came to die for those under the curse so he could lift the curse from us and give us the blessing of God in salvation. The people who misunderstood Jesus' origin. We saw that at the beginning of this text. They think he's just from Galilee, not from Lion David, not from Bethlehem, certainly not from the Father. They also misunderstand his purpose. He came to become the cursed, to become the curse for those of us who are accursed. How did he do that? Well, he was sinless. Yet we are all sinners. In fact, the Pharisees, they, they, they know the law, but here's what they think. They think we're doing the law. We're keeping it. And by doing so, we're earning our way to God. But folks, they're lawbreakers too. These Pharisees don't perfectly keep the law, which makes them lawbreakers. What does Galatians 3 say about those of us, those of us who are lawbreakers? For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. We've looked at irony throughout John 7, 40-52. Here's more. The Pharisees think the crowd is accursed because they believe in Jesus, knowing they failed to keep the law, and here are the Pharisees who think they keep the law and don't need Jesus. And they're the ones who remain accursed. There is a sin that will keep you from faith and repentance. And it's a self-righteous idea that we are good enough on our own. That's what the Pharisees thought. They look at a crowd believing in Jesus and declare them under the curse with the intent of saying, we're good, we're the holy ones, we're the law keepers. They needed the curse-bearing Savior 
as much as this crowd. The only way for cursed people to be free from the curse is if the sinless Son of God dies the death we deserve in our place as our substitute, fully takes the wrath of God against our law-breaking, is raised from the dead, and gives eternal life to all who will believe in Him. And church, here is the glory that I get to share with you this morning. That's the gospel of our Christ. Galatians chapter 3 again, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree, on a tree. At the cross, Jesus freed us from the curse. I don't care how bad you've been or how long you've been bad. If you come to Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. You will be forgiven. I reviewed this week the testimony of Robbie Gallaty. He is senior pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee. But I want you to hear his description of himself on page one of his book, Growing Up. I thought I'd hit rock bottom when I stole $15,000 from my parents. I was a 25-year-old drug dealer, hopelessly addicted to prescription medications. The police were on my trail, and my prosperous life suddenly fell apart. That is a man far from God, right? He's also a man changed by the power and grace of God. On his first night in drug rehab, someone told him that Christ loves him in spite of what he had done. And that night, he turned to Jesus in faith and repentance. That's such a radical story of God's grace. And we have similar radical stories among our church membership. And while I use that term radical to describe that transformation, the truth is, whether you're saved out of the sin of drug dealing, or out of the sin of self-righteousness, or out of the sin of gossip. The grace of God in your life is radical. It is incredible. We who were under the curse rightly had it lifted by a curse-bearing Savior at the cross. Now, since Jesus spoke like no one else spoke, because Jesus is like no one else is, what should we do in light of that? Number one, if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, whether you're in this room listening, whether you're listening on Facebook or radio, wherever you've been, put your faith in Jesus. Nicodemus, at the end of this text, kind of stands up for Jesus. He, he doesn't put a lot on the line, but he does say something. The Pharisees do not kindly greet him. They basically call him a Galilean too. And they mean by that a harsh insult. Are you from Galilee too? Now we have established Jesus is from the line of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He fulfills those prophecies. But in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew will show Jesus fulfilling Isaiah 9 by in a sense showing that Jesus also came from Galilee. I'm not saying he was born in Galilee. 
But he comes out of Galilee to do something. So I want you to hear Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 and following. Now we had heard that John had been arrested. He withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I just want to see, say to you, if you have walked in darkness, turn to the light of Jesus Christ. Don't miss him like the Pharisees did. Put your trust in him as the only one who could rescue us from our sin. And then, if you have trusted Jesus, what should you do in light of the fact that Jesus is or speaks like no one else spoke because he is like no one else is? Withhold no part of your life but submit to him in every area. Jesus is Lord. And if he is Lord in your life, that means no part of your life is held back from him. I'd like you to ask yourself, are there areas of my life that I'm still putting myself over, that I haven't surrendered to Jesus? Or are those areas in my life that I have surrendered, but I, I keep taking back? Would you ask yourself, are there areas that I need to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, the authoritative Lord Jesus? Are there things that you need to repent of and allow Jesus to transform in you? As a follower of Jesus, as one who has placed their faith in Him, are there areas to repent of? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever has. No one ever will. Because no one is like our fully God, fully human Jesus, the only mediator between God and man. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the glory of Jesus. What an honor it is to serve him. Lord, thank you for saving wretches like us. For every person who has come to faith in Jesus, they are forgiven a mountain of spiritual debt. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing the curse at the cross. Thank you for redeeming accursed people like ourselves. And Lord, we pray that you will redeem more. We pray for the nations, that they would hear the good news of Jesus. We pray for our neighbors to hear and respond rightly to the good news of Jesus. God, save people in the nation, save people among our neighborhoods. And Lord, thank you for saving us one way through Jesus. God, we owe you all our praise, all our glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.